Welcome to Be The Light Podcast with C.B. Barflow, lead pastor of Denver Beacon. I am your host, Pastor Ty Morris. Our desire is to lead the lost, the broken, and the hopelessness of our communities, to be light bearers in our city set on a hill. Now tune in for our sermon series. Amen. And so today we begin to turn our focus away from that big thought idea to what James believes to be the next logical thing to think about, which is if God tests me, is God good for me? And what's the difference between being tested and being tempted? So let's read James 1, verse 13. He says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Verse 18, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The title of our message today is He's Only Ever Good. He's only ever good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word today in our time together. Though it be limited, we know you are unlimited. And so, Father, we yield to this word. May it wash over us, renewing our mind and transforming our life. God, give us the, the mind of Christ. And Holy Spirit, give us your will and your way to walk out this faith. In Jesus' name, amen. We only finished the first two points of this message in the 9 a.m. Given our time, there will be a part two for this message next week, I'm sure. That seems to be what the Lord is doing, and I hope that that blesses you in many ways. We could read big chunks and just jump over parts, but I'm a bit of a Bible nerd. I believe it's all good, amen? Like, even the parts that are challenging or hard, I really like them, and I think the Lord is allowing us to slow our pace so that we get everything out of this word. It's like there's two kinds of people who eat chicken wings. You know what I'm preaching already, right? There's some of y'all that just like, and then you, and there's some of y'all. I believe the Lord is trying to raise up a body of believers who are like the second chicken wing eater, eater, who are willing to suck the marrow out of every word of the Lord. Amen? I want all that he has for me. I'm not leaving any meat on the bone. Amen? So it's going to take us a little time to get through this series. It's originally slated for 26 weeks. We will probably be done in 2030 or 31. We'll see what happens in the name of the Lord. Let, Let me tell you this. If you leave with nothing today, I want you to leave with the very idea that God is good. So simple, right? But I mean more hard than you think. 
I was raised in two kinds of churches. I grew up in a very quiet church. I was trained in a very loud church. And despite their myriad differences, one thing remained true in both traditions. There was a thing that we said to each other, a call and response we'd all grown accustomed to. It happens in nearly every body of believers I've ever been to. It's this. God is good and all the time. Don't y'all know that? What church did we go to? We all went to the same church. No, every church seems to know this phrase. Isn't that interesting? And we can all recite it. Amen? Somebody you don't even know can be walking down the street and you, they just say, God is good. And you'd be like, all the time. It's one of those things. If you're an Ohio State fan and someone says, O-H, you go, I-O, right? I don't and would never. There are some things that are culturally accepted, learned, and, and, and used, except for the, the problem about those things in, in most cultural contexts within the Christian faith is that those repetition, those phrases, those little idioms that we use, they're often just word and never deed. So many of us knew where I was going the moment I started to talk about this call and response thing. You were like, here comes our chance. He's about to say, God is good. Let's say all the time. Let's go. God is good all the time, except for you don't live like he's good all the time. You live like he's good sometimes, but most of us are frustrated with God because he doesn't feel like he's good. Oh, I'm preaching for you already. Amen. I'm pushing you right now. Most of us know the phrases, the words, and the things that we say to one another, but few of us really operate like he is actually good all the time. The reason is because his ways are not our ways. His will, not our will. Because he knows more than we know. He knows your tomorrow and how you'll be and what you need. And so when he interacts like a good, good father, sometimes he don't get you what you want right now because it's not what you need. And so we struggle. Amen? This conversation about God's goodness, it's been a forever conversation since the beginning of time. People since the beginning of humanity have been wondering if God was good. The enemy's best attack against God was to get Eve to question if God was good. Did he really say that you could not eat of this? If he really loved you, why would he withhold from you? On and on throughout the course of history, all the way up until the present day, our attack against God from the enemy has always been against his goodness. Not that he's sovereign, but that he's not good. That's why you hear people who don't know God still recognize that God has power. They just think he uses his power for bad. James talks about that right here in verse 13. He's talking to a, a common phrase found amongst the, the Jewish diaspora living throughout the Mediterranean who had come to believe that God was good. He's also speaking to new believers, both Jew and Gentile, who had come to believe that God was good. He's speaking even to pagans who, who, who had understood that Jesus was prophesied as the Messiah, but not yet come to faith in him, who understood that if a God was present, a God could be good, but that a God could also be bad. There was this pervasive idea, and still exists through time, that there is a God who is all-powerful, but maybe not all good. And he speaks right to that moment, and he says, don't you think for a second that God is not good? This still exists 
today. People the world over talk about God all the time. In fact, the people who speak the loudest about God are the least familiar with God. If you scroll through your news feed or watch any amount of television or entertainment, you'll find that a pervasive understanding of God is that he is simply not good. The world will tell you over and over, these are the attributes of God. He's either unengaged or unfair. He's unloving or he's distant. He's aloof or judgmental. He's angry and vengeful, violent. He's wrong or he's dead or he's evil. This is why people ask this question. If God's so good, why do bad things happen? The implication in that question is not that God is good. It's that God is bad. Because if God is good, why would he do bad? The enemy is twisting conversations about the nature of God, not so that you won't believe in God, but so that you'll believe incorrectly about God. That's enough for the enemy. You should know this about the attack for on your soul. It's not that God wants it's not that the enemy wants to reject your faith. He wants you to have an incorrect faith. Amen. This is why religion matters. The enemy would love for us to just be people of ritual and religion. What must I do to be saved has been the eternal question. What are the check marks? What's the list? How do I go through the motions so that I can do whatever is necessary to earn my space? The enemy loves that too. It's not that you reject God. It's that you just don't get him. And the teaching in this text that we've been getting throughout the course of our walk with the Lord is that you might know him in his power, in his suffering, and in his resurrection, oh, that you might see that he is, oh, taste and see. That's the teaching. The world knows he's real. They just don't want to know he's good. Because if he's good, then what he says is good for us. And too much of this world loves what is bad for us. The worst part about this is that the people who know God the least are also the loudest in the world. The curse on the church today is not so much that we know God, it's that we just don't talk about God. One of the biggest things that the enemy has placed upon the body of Christ is the fear of man. We live in a culture in which your views are counter to the culture. Amen. The things that you believe and the things that you hold dear to, especially in the places in which we live, are not dominant culture, and they're not seen as good. In fact, perhaps if you've been walking with the Lord for long enough, if you've been diligent and faithful in this journey and relationship, you will have been called a bigot, judgmental, mean, wrong. Maybe you've even been threatened with being canceled. Now, I'm not one of those people that's going to use cancel like a lot of those other folks. You're like, oh, you can't cancel me. You can cancel me. I don't care. I'm not very popular anyway, in Jesus' name. But my name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and there ain't no eraser up there in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's the thing. Most of us have been so fearful about the world's consequences for being vocal about how God is good and has been good to us that we've gotten real quiet. 
This world is full of opinions about God, and most of them are wrong because they're the loudest, and we are quiet like mouse. What happened to the church? Why are we so quiet? People say, do you go to church? Sometimes. What is wrong with us? Why could we do this to the people that we love? We know that God is real and he saved our soul. If he is the way and the only way, why are we not shouting it for the rooftops? Why? Because we think it would be disruptive in our social circles. It is going to be disruptive in our social circles. It will be abrasive for the people who don't like God and love their sin. They won't like what you say, but they have to hear it lest they die. How could we do this to the people we... Oh, I didn't want to seem weird. You're weird. You are a peculiar people, chosen, royal. You're meant to stand out. If the world likes you like they like you, just the way you are, you may not be walking in faith. You might be in the world. Why are we so quiet about our faith? I have a friend who's an atheist. We talked to him several years ago. He said, you, you know what really drives me crazy about you Christians? And I was like, I don't know. Let's see if yours and mine are the same thing. <laughs> he said, uh, you, you say you have the truth, but you don't really share the truth with anybody. He said, for example, if Jesus was really the only way, then why haven't you been desperately trying to convert me? Why are you just my friend? Let that serve as a, a real piece of sand in your oyster. Oh, let that be abrasive and rub you the wrong way. Whom do you love that has not yet come to know he who loves you? How much time will you waste while they walk towards death? without speaking life. And why do you keep worrying whether or not they'll think it's cool? Amen. James is talking directly to a body of believers who are struggling with knowing that God is good and living accordingly, just as we're challenging each other today. Verse 13, he, he, he uses a conversation about temptation as a challenge to everyone who would read his words throughout the decades. As a metaphor to say, do you really know that he's good and are you living accordingly? And he uses this conversation around temptation because it is a perfect juxtaposition to the conversation he's been having for the last 12 verses about testing. He's been talking and teaching us that God, yes, does test us. God, yes, brings us to trial. And yes, God will use those things for our good to prove us in our faith, to demonstrate to us just what God's put in us that we haven't yet seen. Remember that the apostle has been teaching us that testing is good for us because it graduates us to the next level. And so many of us run from testing because we don't like the way that it feels. Oh, but if you would just press in, there's so much beauty on the other side. And he says, but testing is not the same as temptation. And here's the difference. God tests you, yes, because God has the authority to test you. And because God always invites you 
to the fruit of that testing, which is more faith, more righteousness, more perfection, more completion, more beauty in the name of the Lord. Amen? Like any good proctor or teacher or professor, he has set a time for your test. And he has the authority to say, grab your pencils, it's test day. Amen? But you'd never show up to class and allow another student to say, hey, everybody, it's test day. Wouldn't that be weird if you showed up to your class or at your job and a peer just told you they're interrupting their normally scheduled program in order that they will test you? Wouldn't that seem strange to you? Would you take that test? Of course not. You'd say this is absurd. Why? Because they lack the authority to put you to the test. Amen. And that is why the enemy does not test you. You see, God puts you into tests to prove you, to prove to you what you're made of, the faith that he's already produced because he has the authority to do so. But the enemy possesses no authority, so he cannot force you, cannot test you, cannot prove you, cannot push you into or away from anything. The only thing that the enemy can do is to tempt you. Temptation looks like this. Hey, have you considered this? Temptation is just an introduction. It's just a presentation. The enemy has no authority over your life. Hear me and hear me clearly. The enemy has no authority. I hear people all the time saying, oh, the enemy got me. The enemy's been on me. The enemy's been making me. False. The enemy has no power over the sons and daughters of God. Y'all with me? It's getting quiet just like in the 9 a.m. I can tell that the Lord is doing a thing in our hearts. Usually we're loud in this group, but it, it, I can just tell y'all are like, oh my gosh, where are we going with this? I can tell. Listen, the enemy wants you to think he has power, but he is powerless against those who are blood-bought and infilled by the Holy Spirit. The very best attack he has against you is to show you something that will distract you from the things of God. God never tempts. Only the devil tempts. Because God only invites us to righteousness. And temptation never leads to righteousness. The enemy only invites us to unrighteousness. And that is temptation's aim is that you would step off of the path of ordered steps that the Lord has set before you and be distracted even just for a moment. Seen through this lens, I hope you'll come to understand that temptation is not good. Amen? Temptation is not of God. Amen? But temptation is not also neutral. Too many times I hear people say the following phrase, tell me if you know it, you can look, but you can't. You cannot look. You say, wait a minute, hold on, pastor. I'm faithful to my wife, but I can look. No, you can't look. Jesus said, if you look at a woman with lust in your eyes, you've committed the sin of adultery. Temptation is dangerous, friends. If you think for one moment that you can put yourself in a situation that is continually ongoing, convinced to invite you to unrighteousness, and by yourself you will stand the test of time, you are fooling yourself, friends. The enemy is on 
his own side, not yours. He's not willing to negotiate. He is persistent. He is cunning. He is divisive. And his aim is to kill you. Amen. So you can't put yourselves in environments where temptation are the order of the day. And everyone's temptation is different. Amen? Yeah. Fellas, yeah. our number one temptation comes through our eyes. Did you know that? Most sin for men starts with the lust of the eyes. It looks good. It must be good. I will taste and see if it's good. That's exactly right. Women, temptation comes to the mind. Women think through temptation and then plan. This is why women are smarter and also never get caught in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> Men are just like, oh, that looks so fancy pants. I want to go. Here's the problem, okay? Most of us are tempted by something different, but in similar ways by a similar enemy. And for some foolish reason, we all think, no, 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 they give in to temptation, but not me. That's dangerous thinking. Hear me. Temptation is not neutral. Temptation is bad. And here's how things go bad. James shifts his tenor in verse 14. He says, now, each person is tempted when? He is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then, desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. He is teaching us the life cycle of temptation. I should call it the death cycle because it ends only in death. Temptation comes, but as a knock on the door. The enemy cannot force you. He cannot make you to sin. He cannot move your hand, but he can show you something that looks tasty. The enemy knocks, just as Jesus does, on the door of your heart, and you get the choice to answer the door. Let me show you how this plays out in my life. The doctor told me last Last month, I had to lose 25 pounds. The devil is a liar. But my doctor is probably true. And so I've begun the journey of eating more healthy and working out differently. And I'm down 16 pounds. Hallelujah. But I've been down 16 pounds for about a month now. I'm kind of stuck. And here's why, okay? Because every time the enemy knocks on my door with cake, I open the door in Jesus' name. Amen? In fact, every night, my wife and I will have a wonderful dinner, a very well-planned and balanced meal of lean meats and green vegetables. And as soon as we're done, I ask the same question. Honey, is there any cake? And the answer is no, because she doesn't put cake in our house. Do you know why? Because I need to lose some weight. And so I am led not by the enemy who tempts me. No, he only presents the idea. I am led from the idea to the failure by what? My flesh. You see, if there's no cake in the house, I shouldn't have a problem. But sometimes I argue that we should go to the store and get cake. Well, that's not the enemy. Who is that? That's me. James outlines the life cycle or death cycle of temptation by essentially saying one thing. You are the primary driver of this life cycle. The enemy knocks. Here's sin. And James says, sin happens like this. We're tempted and lured 
by our own desire. There's three components. Your desire, the habit of sin, and the death it produces. Your desire comes out of your flesh nature. Each of us born into this world under the curse of Adam, the original sin, each one of us born into sin. That's why Jesus says we must be born again. And because of that flesh nature that God seeks to change, crucify, make you new, left to your own devices, you will crave that which is not good for you. Am I talking to anybody here? You will crave things that are bad for you. That's the fallen sinful nature. That is why we must daily crucify the flesh. That is why we must daily seek repentance. That is also why sin that it was enticing to you yesterday is boring to you today. That's why people who suffer with addiction-like sins to sex, drugs, rock and roll, gambling, or whatever it is, must continually engage in ever more perverse practices because they need to be more and more thrilled. The body wants darker, deeper, and more perverse sin, okay? I'm pushing hard today. We're trying to get right to the marrow of this thing. It's why the thing that you did that one time that you thought, gosh, I hope nobody ever knows about, is something you do all the time now and it doesn't really bother you. It's because your own flesh longs for that which is evil. And so the enemy knows that and he doesn't have to force you. He just says, look. And when your desire gives in to that temptation, it produces sin. And sin, oh, I wish I could tell you, wasn't a big deal. We as a church globally have moved away from teaching about sin. It's abrasive. It feels old school. It feels kind of sinny. Sin? Sin? That's a weird thing to talk about in church. No, it's like the only thing to talk about in church. Amen? Here's the problem with sin. The wages of sin is death. There is not one sin that the Lord looks at and goes, yeah, that one's fine. I mean, it's like, it's not good for them, but you guys are fine. That's not the way that it works. The Bible says that your flesh longs for what is wrong. You entice. The word that he uses here in the text is that it lures you and entices you. James is actually using a literary device meant to evoke images of fishing. He's in the Mediterranean. He's teaching to people who understand the vocation of fishing. And he's using this idea of hooked bait that would be dangled before you as beautiful and delicious. And the moment that you wrapped your lips around it, it would hook you and reel you in. You are helpless to rescue yourself from it. That's what sin really is. You think you can dabble in sin? You're hooked. You think you can mess around with sin? You're hooked. You think it's okay just for a season? You are hooked. And the devil is reeling you in. Fuss and fight all you want. But you don't have the tools. You don't have the strength. You can't unhook yourself. Temptation is not good. It is not neutral. It is bad. And if you entertain it for too long, you will be hooked. And if you stay hooked, you're going to get cooked. That enemy is going to gut you, fillet you. This isn't in the notes, but this is a good metaphor. I'm feeling this in the name of the Lord. He's going to fry you up like a good trout. The wages of sin is death. And here's how James says it. He says, you are tempted when you're lured and enticed by your own desire. You're driving the train, okay? And then that desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin matures, 
it brings forth nothing but death. Hear me. One of the ways in which people have gotten the identity of God wrong, thinking he not good, but thinking he bad, is by thinking that he's a punisher. Have you ever heard this in your cultural context? God is punishing you. God is punishing you for the wrongs you've done. You ever hear people say, um, um, you're getting what you deserve? Hear me, God does not punish here. Oh, pastor, what do you mean he doesn't punish? What about hell? Oh, I'm glad you asked about hell. Do you think hell is punishment? You're wrong. Hell is not punishment. Hell's not punishment. Do you think that God sends people to hell so he can oppress them? So he can push them? So he can hurt them because he's angry at them? No. God doesn't send people to hell to hurt them. In fact, he doesn't even send them to hell. God lets people go to hell. Those whom cho- who have chosen to go to hell. I'll put it like this. If you choose to live in sin, God will let you die in it. You see, hell is not a place of torment because it's a place of punishment. Hell is a place of torment because of the absence of God. Hell is just that. It is a place where God does not reside. And he has created that place for those who live on this earth who would reject the things of God and say, I want nothing of you. And God says, fine, in just a moment, you'll get what you want forever. That's what sin produces. It's not that if you sin, God kills you. If you choose to live in sin, God will let you walk that thing all the way out to its logical conclusion until you are so separate from God but have received all that you've wanted your whole life that you will die in it. That's hard to hear, amen? But that doesn't make God bad. That makes God just. In fact, it actually makes God a gentleman. I don't want you. Cool. You won't get me. But for those of us who say, Lord, I want you, great. Be prepared to spend eternity with me. We're over time. We're going to finish the rest of this conversation next week. Would you stand to your feet? I want to give you one piece to wrap this into a bow for you. Talking about God as good and the ways in which the enemy tries to distract us from his goodness, specifically through temptation. Here is your challenge for the week as we prepare to close this message next week. We're going to just talk about the ways in which God is good through the ages, through the eons, through the testaments and covenants. I'm going to outline for you all of the good things that God has done, all of the ways in which he's been good to you and how he's made you good. We're going to talk that through. But while we're getting ready for that, let's concerted effort Let's make a concerted effort to look at the temptation in our life. This week, I want you to ask the Lord to search your heart and ask two things. Lord, where does temptation come most? What are the atmospheres and environments? What are the situations and circumstances? What are the people and places where the enemy tempts me the most? Lord, show those things to me. And two, 
what temptation do I love to entertain? You said, not me. No, totally you. There's a few things that you tolerate. You think religious people are weird because they don't think that's a big deal. There are some things right now that you entertain that the enemy is using as a continual knocking on the door of your heart that he might distract you, derail you, and lead you to death. First question, Lord, where am I tempted? And two, what temptation do I love? And then we're going to ask the Lord to remove those this week. Ask him to search your heart and give you the courage to step away from those things, to kill those things so those things don't kill you. Amen? Let me pray for you real quick. Heavenly Father, we love you. God, this week I ask you to search our hearts. God, help us to be people of the word people who apply the word to our life, not just to hear a good message, not just to be entertained on Sunday, but people who would be willing to look at this word and say, if temptation is not good for me, where do I live with temptation and call it good? God, this week, open our eyes and then give us the courage to flee from temptation, to resist temptation, to reject temptation. For Father, we want only what is from you, that which invites us to righteousness, that which calls us to be more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for joining Be The Light Podcast with lead pastor C.B. Barthlow. Visit our website at denverbeacon.org. To download our Beacon app, Text Beacon to 97000. Once again, text Beacon to 97000. Whatever you do, please remember to be the light. Let's go!